welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the breezily young, serenely hip, and refreshingly lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello. You sound relaxed. I am. I'm enjoying my vacation very much. Thank you. <laughs> Hello again from all of us. Uh, we are still enjoying our little Jesuitical sabbatical. Um, I don't know where we are at this exact moment, but hopefully relaxing on a beach or a park or something. But we have another wonderful interview that we wanted to bring for you guys while we were on break. So who are we talking to, Olga? So this week, we're talking with Father Gilbert Sungera SJ. He is an architectural consultant and associate professor of architecture at the University of Detroit Mercy. Some of the projects he's worked on include the Jesuit community at Fairfield, which is a beautiful cabin-like building, um, and the Jesuit High School Chapel in Sacramento, which is really striking. It's pointed. It's a pointed white structure, which looks like a really, really classy spaceship. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my architectural. Right that's my it. architectural Astute talk right there. Yeah, this is really fun because, like, this is an area that is so far outside. <laughs> my wheelhouse um and then to hear someone talk about it from a specifically jesuit perspective was super interesting mm-hmm. it was a really fun one i was absent for this interview mm. which upsets me because i live with two architects and i'm yeah. sure they would have really loved this they still will so we hope you enjoy this conversation with father Sungera about the tradition of architecture in the catholic church and how he found his vocation as a jesuit slash architectural consultant Joining us on Skype is Father Gilbert Sungera SJ. He is an architectural consultant and associate professor of architecture at the University of Detroit Mercy. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, we're very excited to start our conversation with you. But before we get started, how should we refer to you as Father Gilbert or? Uh, you could just call me Gilbert. Okay. That's fine. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Gilbert. Um, so you've said before that when you joined the Jesuits, you assumed that you would have to give up architecture. And obviously that hasn't been the case. But what was it like for you having to choose between two things that you're passionate about? Well, you know, it's interesting. Again, as a Jesuit, you're kind of, you have to get that freedom to be able to let go of anything. Um and it was because I loved architecture that I was able to uh, enter into the Jesuits. Can you tell that story of how, how, just kind of how those events happened, how one led to the other? So I was doing my architectural degree in Milwaukee, and that's where I first met the Jesuits. And I was um, intrigued because Marquette, the, uh, the Jesuit church, is an urban church. And I had grown up in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And I never really um, understood urban parishes until I was there at the Jesu. So I was intrigued by the Jesuits because they chose to have a parish in the downtown setting. It was a beautiful church. It still is. But but being part of that community was helpful. Um, I didn't imagine myself entering the priesthood. But as I finished up my architectural degree, I began again to fall in love with this idea of being uh, an architectural designer and creating spaces and beautiful spaces. And uh, my focus shifted to public interest architecture, specifically the architectural response to homelessness. Hmm. So when I went back to California, the first job I worked at uh, was more housing and it was not that exciting. Mm-hmm. So I ended up leaving that office and um, kind of said, I, I was kind of being snotty about it. I kind of said that uh, <laughs> I was uh, I was morally opposed to what they were doing because it was mm. track housing and developers were making a boatload of money on houses that really didn't cost that much money. So I said, I needed to leave this and go and do 
my interest, which was in homelessness and architecture, and worked for a nonprofit firm in Los Angeles. And then as part of that, I think that was where I uh, really realized that I was kind of passionate about social justice issues in a way that was beyond architecture and found the Jesuits to be um, very much interested in that. I've read that the, your your background, or before you did architecture, you're interested in psychology and kind of the psychology of architecture. How does built environment um, affect like our emotions and like our access to the divine? Um, what are the what are the factors that go into go into that? Uh, well, there's a, a lot of different ones. I mean, if you think about it, um, every building kind of communicates a certain value uh, to the community of who their owners are, whether it's your house or even like a fast food restaurant. I mean, the original design for McDonald's was those beautiful uh, Cadillac fins that were on the back of Cadillacs. And if you'd seen those original designs that were in California, they, they replicated that. And it was I think a lot of people would be surprised of- <laughs> to hear McDonald's as an example of beautiful architecture. Yes. <laughs> well, the originals, the original ones. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. <laughs> but the original ones were actually quite beautiful. Yeah. But- I would say the quality of light uh, that these spaces can capture. So it's not about having a lot of windows that just pour in light. It's really about modulating light so that one even recognizes the movement of clouds on a sunny day. Well, on a cloudy day, I guess, on a cloudy day. But that, that motion that we're connected somehow to the cosmos in a way that's profound. But it's not always about seeing the light. It's about how light enters into space and then how it kind of um, begins to move us in ways that are quite, I think, emotional. But then I would think it's that transcendence to the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, architects have always been exploring these ideas of how to create it. The modern mind kind of enters into um, the sacred in different ways than ancient cultures did, where it was always infused into everything. I think we compartmentalize it now in our in our contemporary times. So you have to allow people slowly to transition and enter into these kinds of spaces. That's actually quite fascinating, Gilbert, because I've talked about on the show, I was just recently in the process of finding a new parish. And one of the things that really, that I did not like about the first parish that I checked out was that it didn't have any natural lighting whatsoever. They had these like really bright fluorescent lights throughout Mm -hmm. the entire church. And I was like, I don't feel (laughs) like, I was like, I feel like I can't get into a prayerful mode here. And it really, I just did not like it at all. Like going to your dentistry, dentist office. (laughs) Um, Exactly. And that's something I, so I moved to New York five years ago um, and I've just like love, like there's so many beautiful churches here. Mm -hmm. Like I live in Brooklyn and there's probably like five gorgeous, not cathedrals, but like huge churches built in the 19th or 20th century um, that are just beautiful. And coming from um, suburban Virginia, where our churches were very much in like the post-Vatican II 1970s modern mode, um, (laughs) which I was not particularly a fan of. I just really, I really appreciate um, those spaces. So this is kind of like a can of worms. How do you feel about like more modern churches? (laughs) (laughs) I have to admit, uh, I'm much more of a modernist than I am uh, a traditionalist, only because that's the way that, that we build nowadays. We don't have that we don't use kind of stone on stone construction uh, when you see it it's always fake you know it's mm-hmm. a real thin layer of stone on a steel structured building let's say and i just find that 
disjointedness of it um, problematic for the faith. And the church always says you need to be authentic with your use of materials mm -hmm. and stuff. So um, there's different churches that can do this. The problem is, is again, I think the churches in general haven't realized how much uh, it costs to do beautiful buildings nowadays. And in the olden days, you know, I hate to say it, it was slave labor, you know, yeah, and right. almost all the churches in the U.S. built in that, you know, especially in the 1800s, 1900s, early 1900s, you know, had immigrants that came over from the old world that knew how to build like this and could do beautiful stone carvings, could do all of the things that there were there. But nowadays, we really don't have that talent pool. So you have to figure out, like, how can you create something that's beautiful, but true to the way we build nowadays? Mm -hmm. And there's a few churches like that. Um, the Los Angeles Cathedral, I think, is probably one of the better examples. Uh, most people aren't a big fan of the outside, but I haven't heard anyone yet uh, complain about the inside. It's really uh, an exceptional space, just the way the forms and the shape, bounce light, trap lights. Um, move you into kind of worship in just kind of creative ways. But it was $200 million, too, so it's a little on the pricier side. Most parishes would never yeah. be willing to do that. Yeah. So do you, you get pushback from parishes that don't want to invest their money that way? Or if there's concerns that, oh, you know, like our money is better spent on the poor um, and not right. on building beautiful sacred spaces? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the things I do early with the committee is I help them identify their goals and their aspirations. And once they've got that defined, it's easier for them to see where they could use funds in a creative way. So I was working with a very poor parish in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it's a Hispanic parish. And they um, they would raise money basically by selling tacos on the weekends. That's how they kind of pulled their money together. And the Archdiocese was helpful to help provide some funding, but not a lot. And we did a renovation of a um, Christian Reformed church to, to do this. And the design actually turned out beautifully. And they just became very creative on how they did, uh, how they used materials. Um, we had an international artist who was a ceramic artist that people uh, knew. He was from the Hispanic community, but they said, oh, he'll never be willing to do a piece for us. We could never afford him. Then it turned out that he, uh, he had been baptized in that church. So uh, he was more than flattered to just provide this at cost, you know, just the material costs. And so they were able to get an original, several pieces of original art, actually, that are as part of the space. So it's just about being, thinking through creatively. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a more contemporary design, and not all the materials are true. We we used a lot of bamboo, for example, uh, paneling systems because it was um, sustainable, and they wanted to be sustainable, even though they were poor parish. They said uh, we're concerned about the ecology, so let's do this the best way we could. And they used uh, old-fashioned linoleum, which actually is much more um, friendlier to the environment than any vinyl products and stuff, and they were willing to put a little extra money into that and less into uh, getting brand new furniture pieces. We reused pieces from other mm -hmm. churches and right. stuff. So again, it's, once you, once you understand their value, then it's easier to move it forward. Yeah. Right. And Gilbert, what's the name of the, the parish you were just describing? So we can include this in our show notes for our listeners. Oh, sure. St. Joseph, the worker. Oh, nice. And um, it's in Wyoming, Michigan. Got it. Thank you. Um, so why do you think Catholics should care about architecture? 
<laughs> well, I mean, we're a sensate uh, faith group, I say. You know, and Ignatius was brilliant at this, right? He always uses the imagination to understand complex uh, scripture passages, you know. So what do your senses inform you? So if you don't care about the environment, uh, the visual environment as well, uh, then you're not getting the full depth of what potentially could be this incredible experience this encounter with God. So I would say, especially for Jesuits, and we came about in a period that was uh, architecturally during the Baroque period. So it was the Counter-Reformation and the church was exuberant in its use of materials. But if you look at any of the early um, Jesuit churches, especially the ones in like Mexico, where uh, the examples of Mexican Baroque architecture just went to the extremes where literally every inch is carved in these spaces. I mean, they're just other uh, thrilling environments. Um, but again, Ignatius was brilliant on this need to, to do it. And he was very clear that the uh, churches should spare no expenses in uh, creating their spaces. One of my uh, favorite books, and probably the only book that I've read that's tangentially about architecture, is Pillars of the Earth. Have you read that? Yes. It's by Ken Follett. It's about like the construction of the first cathedrals in Europe. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, so I one just love that book, so I had to shout it out. Um, but two, so like that was a time when like architecture was like synonymous with Catholic architecture. Like you weren't building anything that wasn't a church or like a castle, I guess. Um, but do you think there's is there is there a distinctly Catholic aesthetic in architecture today, or are we is it just too diffuse I, to say that I there is? Yeah, I don't. I, I would say I, right now, no. Um, I think the, the larger question is just the sacred. I was working on a, a chapel for our Jesuit high school in Sacramento. And uh, one of the students, when they were asked about this, they said, I want something that I could never have imagined. Uh, I'm looking for a God that's, um, how did he phrase it? A, a God that's greater than myself, I think is how he, he phrased it. And it was an intriguing kind of thing. So the architects just kind of ran with that and created a beautiful space. And it's a very contemporary uh, chapel as well. But again, it wasn't anything that the student could imagine. So these kind of really mid-50s, mid-70s church buildings that are so kind of non-inspiring uh, mm -hmm. tend to be things that anyone can imagine. And I think they were trying to downplay uh, that sense of this God who's the other. But now I think it's moving towards the a return to that, you know, the uniqueness of these kinds of spaces. So um, you mentioned um, uh, taking into consideration um, ecological and environmental concerns uh, in, in architecture. Um, and it's actually something that uh, Pope Francis mentioned in his encyclical Laudato Si on the environment. Uh, there was a quote, uh, that I thought of, um, it was, if architecture reflects the spirit of our of an age, our megastructures and drab apartment blocks express the spirit of globalized technology where a constant flood of new products coexists with a tedious monotony. Um, would you, do you agree with his, his diagnosis of our current age? And um, how would you, you know, if you were going to revolutionize the way we think about building, what, what would be your... Your, your dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's a, a big order, I would say. Um, I, it, it, part of the problem is there's a lot of just bad design out there, mediocre design. Um, 
But there's also a lot of beautiful design that really is meant to be background building. So not every building needs to be exciting and engaging and uh, overwhelming, I would say. Uh, churches should be because they're just unique buildings. Uh, but I don't think you know, the average apartment building should necessarily be that exciting. I mean, people live there and stuff like that, but they should feel like they're part of a fabric of the city. And you see this like in New York, there's beautiful examples of uh, buildings that are fairly nondescript that are just beautifully proportioned. They work with the streets. They're not trying to stand out and be unique in and of themselves. And so I think I would just say the cautionary note, and I'm sure the Pope, uh, I would not challenge the Pope on this, but, <laughs> but it, but that, uh, you know, that, that that would be something that uh, does allow people to feel like they're part of something larger. It's these larger, it's the old-fashioned housing projects. Those were where uh, we, I think, we really ran into some struggles. And there's a whole uh, movement now on hip-hop architecture. And actually, one of our alums here at Detroit Mercy has been kind of instrumental in this. What, uh, is, what this does that mean? What is hip-hop architecture? Well, it's the response, and this is the intriguing part, and I have to admit, I, I don't fully understand it, <laughs> but what he's kind of saying is, is that um, with music, hip-hop culture emerged out of these uh, huge apartment buildings that were, uh, most of them now, kind of torn down, uh, but they were that, that sense of what Pope Francis was talking about, you know, where one becomes this ubiquitous cog in a, in a bigger wheel, and that wheel is broken, you know, mm -hmm. especially in or uh, systemically poor neighborhoods and stuff. So, um, so music became the way that uh, that they began to respond and react to it, and that reaction then has an architectural component. So, uh, is there a way that architecture as a building can actually do that? It motivated this this kind of uh, movement in music, but is there a way that it maybe responds back to it? Is the way I would phrase it. So he's been just really intrigued by this idea, and he's been running these camps with kids all around the country, looking at um, hip hop architecture and, and what does it mean. Now the implications of the larger community is could be really compelling, um, and maybe in some ways it's like what Pope Francis is challenging mm -hmm. architects to do in that way. So think about it. But there is something about uh, neighborhoods and how they develop that doesn't have to be about um, you know exciting buildings all the time. It's about belonging to a fabric that's healthy. And the fabric that's healthy is beautifully designed, well-proportioned. I mean, I see it all around Detroit. There's some beautiful neighborhoods, even though they've collapsed from um, people that have moved away and stuff like that. Even the bones that remain of these houses are beautifully proportioned and well-built and right. cared for stuff. Right. Great. So one final question for you, Gilbert. Um, uh -huh. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? Can you canonize a building? You could. <laughs> we, no one has ever done it, but if you'd like to. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's a tricky one. <laughs> that's a, I, and I'm sure I'm going to get pushed back in the architectural community for this, but I, I would give it to Frank Gehry. And uh, oddly enough, he's he's Jewish, but he goes to mass, I think, on a weekly basis in oh. St. Monica, Santa Monica. And um, his For wife. For those is who Catholic. aren't f familiar with him, can you 
give a brief bio sketch. He's um he's the one that did like uh, the Guggenheim in Bilbao, Spain, or the Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. Um, he was he was even uh, mocked in uh, The Simpsons, so he's hit that. <laughs> that you know you've made it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the spaces that he's created, and he's very sculptural about this. Uh, to me, it uh, speaks a bit about the the encounter with spaces that don't have to make sense on an intellectual level, but are trying to tap something that's much more primal, and I would say much more spiritual that way. Um, it was interesting when we were working on this Jesuit high school project, uh, we had sent an invitation to him, and he was very interested. He's always wanted to do a Catholic church or chapel, and he did uh, the campus of Loyola University's law school, Loyola Marymount's uh, law school in Los Angeles, early on when he was first kind of shifting his style from truly modernist to this more sculptural one and did a beautiful little chapel uh, for that space. But he's always wanted to return to that and uh, told us that, but uh, he wasn't able to, his time commitment was just too great for all his other projects. So he wasn't able to do it. And our budget was so small. It was, I think, $5 million. And yeah. his projects it were all- It would have to be a charity yeah. project for him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe not, after I mean, he hears that you've canonized him, he'll reconsider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah. St. Frank Gary. Yep. <laughs> thanks so much for talking to us, Gilbert. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks for talking to hey. us. Okay. Right. Take Have care. a great evening. Bye. Have a good one. <laughs> Bye. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson, engineering and design by Angelo Jesus Canta. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. You can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you in August. <laughs>